Well, once again, good morning, beloved. Is it okay if I call you that? It's what, it's what the Lord says about you. You're beloved. And you're very dear to myself as well and to my family. And uh, it's just good to look out at you, to see your faces, um, because you mean something. And it's a privilege for me to be able to share with you the things that I'm learning in the Word of God. And I'm really excited about today. So I'm turning in my Bibles to the book of Daniel. We left off in the middle of chapter 2 last week. So Daniel chapter 2 is your turn in there. Let me bow with a, for a word of prayer. Lord, we expect great things because You're a great God. You're the great I Am. How could we not expect anything less? So Lord, how... Uh, Speak to us then today. Your word is true. It is faithful. It does not return without producing in us what you intended to do. So Lord, have your way. Have your way with us today. Bless this time together in your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Daniel chapter 2. I'm picking up. In verse 31, would you stand with me as we finish this chapter? Daniel chapter 2, beginning with verse 31. Daniel's speaking and he says to the king, remember he's before Nebuchadnezzar at this point, he says, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the shaft of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw, the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, It shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. 
And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brutal. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel, and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and made and many great gifts, and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. You can have a seat. I was uh, reading this week... um, are there any of Swedish descent here today? Any Swedes? Oh, a few. Okay. Um, are you familiar with Swedish folklore? Every ancient, older cultures have stories. They have legends and folklore. And I was reading that in Swedish folklore, there is a story in which one is able to find out things pertaining to the future. And what it involves, uh, the, the English translation of what they, of the word for this is, it's called a, a year walk. Okay? A year walk. Okay? And so what people would do, supposedly, was on New Year's Day, okay? supposedly a kind of a supernatural day, people at midnight would walk through the woods, okay? to a sacred site such as a graveyard or a church. Now, they were supposed to do this in complete silence, and along the way, the stories say that creatures would come out, strange creatures, to lure you away from your objective, harming you or even killing you. But should you reach your destination, you were promised to receive omens that would tell you what was to come in the year ahead how the harvest would be, uh, would there be marriages, would there be deaths. Okay. And so the, the folklore goes. Now, maybe you're not as desperate uh, to the extent that you would walk through the woods at midnight on New Year's Day. I hope not. Nor, I hope, would you be as foolish to believe that of any of that. But have you ever wondered, maybe lying in bed, what is to come after this? After this harvest, or after this school year, or uh, how about this one? After President Trump. 
I say, I don't want to think about that. But it's coming, right? What about after him? What about after the U.S. of A.? You do know no kingdom or nation will last forever, right? What about after that? You realize that Daniel lived through not just one, but two great changes in world power. First through the fall of his own country, so he saw his own king deposed, Judah fell, and then... He also lived through the fall of Babylon, which took them captive. So when you think about it, does does the future alarm you? Now when God speaks in His Word about human history, He doesn't do so with a knowledge of, well, from the beginning up until the present, as if that's as far as He knows, because that's as far as we've gotten. When God speaks of the future of human history, He tells it from the beginning to the end, and everything in between. I love this verse from Isaiah. Let me put it up here for you. Here's what God says. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Hey, not only does God know the beginning and the end and everything in between, meaning His knowledge is perfect, but whatever He purposes, it says here that He will accomplish, meaning no thing and no one can thwart that plan. He's more powerful than the most powerful man or nation on earth. Now, at the time of Daniel, that earthly powerhouse was Babylon, right? And in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had a nightmarish dream that was so troubling he determined he needed to know the meaning of it. Well, in the process, you remember this, the Babylonian religion was exposed as an utter sham. They couldn't do it. His advisors couldn't tell him it. And the true God was exalted, right? As Daniel and his his faithful friends prayed to God and God showed it to them. And Daniel tells the king, listen, God, the true God, has revealed this mystery to you because God gave you, O king, the dream. He revealed it to you because God gave it to you. Did you notice this in verse 29 of chapter 2? Here's what Daniel tells the king. Look at this. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. That's what the king was thinking about. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. Now think about that. God gave a prophetic dream to who? A pagan Gentile king. Well, wait a second. I thought God's word normally came through the people of Israel, right? Weren't they the spokesmen for God? Well, how is this then? You say, why didn't God, why did God give it to Nebuchadnezzar, this prophetic dream? Well, consider this. That in relation to God, Israel, the people of Israel, were at this time worse than the pagan nations. You say, how was that? Well, 
You see, the pagan nations were ignorant of God. They didn't even know who God, the true God was. But the Israelites, well, they were apostate. Yeah, meaning they knew the great I Am, and they still turned away from Him, right? It's like Jesus who later said to the city of Capernaum, you know, it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom in the day of judgment than for you, because greater works were done in you. And had they been done in Sodom, that city would still be here today. Israel was worse than even Babylon. Never before had Israel been so humbled by God than when Jerusalem was captured and destroyed. Think about it, right? Egypt couldn't do it. They couldn't topple Jerusalem. Assyria couldn't do it. But you realize that those attempts had nothing to do with a lack of strength or strategy on their part. Oh, no. Believe me, Assyria was more than powerful enough to capture Jerusalem. You say, why didn't it happen? Because God prevented it. It wasn't their time. And it would not be time until the sins of Jerusalem were full. And that's when we read in Daniel 1, verse 1, that God gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. From the time David established Jerusalem as the center of Israel, that city had never been forsaken. These were unique times. Right? Israel had fallen. Now they would turn again to God. And the exile would end as foretold, right? But listen, things would never be as they were. Okay. What began in Daniel 1, verse 1, is still in effect, to get this, till today. It's called by Jesus, the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles. Luke 21, verse 24. This comes at the end of, um, Jesus is talking about a time yet future to us, but regarding this era, this time span. And he says about the Jewish people, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. When? For how long? Until the times of the Gentiles are done. Until they're fulfilled. This period began with the Babylonian captivity. And it will not be complete till the Messiah Jesus comes back again. So, it is a time in which the Jewish people will live under the ungodly rule of Gentile nations. The Gentiles are in charge. They're in dominion. Okay? And we see indicators of this shift in Daniel. You remember this from last week? That from chapters 2 to 7, because we're in chapter 2 right now, switch in their language. Daniel uses a different language if you were looking at the original writing. It wasn't in Hebrew. But in 2 to 7, it's in Aramaic. You say, well, why is that? Well, here's why. Because it's describing the era, the whole time span of the times of the Gentiles. This was not just a matter of 70 years. 70 years was the length of the exile. But even after they returned, right, the land and the people were still under Gentile rule. The Persians ruled them, the Greeks ruled them, the Romans ruled them. Even today, there's a Jewish state, but it's fraught with constraints by more powerful Gentile nations. And guess what? They don't possess the land that they were promised. Not to the extent God promised them. And as last I checked, the Messiah is not on David's throne, is he? No. 
The shift in human history that turned in Daniel's day remains till the present. The times of the Gentiles continues now. So in an immediate way, if you're just thinking this text, what does it mean okay, to those who heard it? Okay, For the original audience, they were asking a very significant question, which is this. Is God finished with us? Is this it? I've never seen this happen before. God has always seen us through. He's always saved us from our enemies. But now, here we are with our harps hung up on the rivers of Babylon, and I can't sing the songs of Zion. So what's to happen with us? Right? That's the immediate question. And hovering above it is this one. What is to become of human history? Where is it all ultimately headed? But I want to bring it down more personally, which is this. How do I relate to that history? See, you're a part of it. There's no skirting around that. You're part of the history. So how then do you relate to what is now unfolding? And that's something that you cannot afford not to answer. So, we looked at it together, right? We read through this dream. First then, okay, let's talk about here. Let's, do you see this? The description of the dream, right? Three things I want you to take note of, beginning in verse 31. Look at this. 31 says, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. Here's the first thing. The spectator. Did you notice how the great Nebuchadnezzar, right, who has the authority to say who's going to live and who's going to die, right, here in this dream is reduced to nothing more than a spectator. He's not the actor. He's looking. And here's something ironic, okay? In the next chapter, which we'll get to, the king's response to what he hears in this dream is an attempt, what he, he attempts to, now I'm going to take matters into my own hand, and I'm going to secure future loyalty. As if somehow he would prevent the dream from ever being fulfilled. <laughs> well, despite his influence and his power, what he sees he has no control over. He is merely an onlooker. And that is humbling. And what does he see? Well, the second thing here is the statue, right? The statue. What is looming before him okay, is what my translation reckons a great image. And the Aramaic word clarifies that what he's seeing is a statue. Image meaning a statue. Okay? Described as mighty, right, of exceeding brightness. It gives the idea that okay, uh, this is a massive statue. And it's so splendorous. I mean, this thing is shining to the extent that it's frightening to look at. But there's more, right? Look at verse 32. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. So you, you catch the description here that what's... This image that's looming before Nebuchadnezzar is shaped like what? Like, like a human being, isn't it? Its appearance is as a man. Furthermore, we learn that the image has four identical 
identifiable parts, right? Because each of those parts is made from a different metal. you got a head of gold, chest and arms silver, the torso, bronze, legs of iron, and feet iron and clay. So what do you see here? Well, from top to bottom, there's what? There's depreciation, right? Each successive metal is of lesser value than the previous one. Another way you can think about it is that this statue is also top-heavy. Gold is the weightiest of those metals, and it sits at the top. And each metal beneath it is lighter in its weight. But also this, right? It's also much more brittle and weak. And by the way, iron and clay do not mix. They don't stick to each other, right? And that's the bottom. That's the feet. Well, still looking on, Daniel relates what Nebuchadnezzar saw next. This is where the action starts, right? Something happens now. Verse 34. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. So thirdly, then, we see this, right? The stone. The stone. And this is a... uh, very peculiar stone. As Daniel says that it was cut without human hands. He's referring to the way that stones were quarried, right? For building purposes, when you went to make something, you quarried stones. It was cut out of the mountain or wherever you were taking it from. Only this stone was cut, what? Without Human hands. It, in other words, it has no human origin. It's not part of the statue that he sees. It doesn't originate from it. In other words, you say it's not from man. And this peculiar stone then strikes this great, massive image right at the feet and it smashes them in pieces, right? And from here, the whole thing topples over, it breaks apart. But notice this. Did you notice? how utterly the whole statue is destroyed, right? Verse 35. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the shaft of the summer threshing floor. So they didn't just fall over and break into pieces, like a big piece of gold here and silver and whatnot. They were utterly crushed, okay, like shaft, and they disappear with the wind. No trace of it is left. Okay, When all is said and done, this great and splendorous statue is completely gone. It's gone with the wind, right? And we call to mind this verse, right? Remember this? Psalm 1, verse 4. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So the image is gone, but, right, there's a but here, right in verse 35. But the stone that struck the image, here's the contrast, became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. The image breaks, blows away, but the stone grows and it fills the earth. Okay? And that's the dream. There it is. Okay. 
Now, I love how Daniel uh, doesn't stop and say to the king, you know, um, so was I right? You know, did I get it right? Was that the dream? He doesn't have to. You know why? Because he wasn't guessing. <laughs> Verse 36, this was the dream. What confidence, right? Now we will tell the king its interpretation. Because Daniel could relate to the, the king what the dream was, it told the king that his interpretation would also be reliable. So here then, beginning in verse 37, we have the disclosure of the dream. What does it mean? Well, here's it is, okay? Now, beginning in verse 37, right? You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the power and the glory. Verse 38, you've given everything into your hands. You are the head of gold. And then verse 39, but another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. And then yet a third kingdom, right? And then he talks about a fourth kingdom, right? And that one's partly of mixture, right, of this iron and clay, okay? So the great image that Nebuchadnezzar saw is actually a visual foretelling of what was to come after his time. And what, what, what do you see here? There's going to be four successive kingdoms, and each one is inferior to the previous, but yet powerful, yet far-reaching, right? Now, there's really two ways that we could proceed from here in talking about this text, okay? One way is we can get caught up in analyzing these kingdoms, right? Because here we are much later in history, and we can look back and say, well, here's what we think, okay? Um, this is this kingdom, and this one must be this kingdom. And for what it's worth, okay, I believe that the kingdoms that Daniel's talking about here are, one, of course, Babylon, then the Medes and the Persian Empire as one, the Greek Empire, and then the Romans. Now, others will split the Medes and the Persians into the second and third kingdom and say that Greece was the fourth. Now listen, I could go from here, I could make a very convincing argument why Rome is the fourth kingdom. But you know what? I'm not that concerned with identifying them. You know why? Because Daniel wasn't concerned about it either. In fact, Daniel only identifies one kingdom, right? The head of gold. That's you, Nebuchadnezzar. Beyond that, he doesn't say what the other kingdoms are. Maybe it's purposefully elusive because such details are not the main point. Hey, easy to get off point when studying the Word of God, isn't it? It is. So what is it then? What's the main point of what Daniel has related here to the dream? What, well, let me ask you this. What does Daniel tell us? <laughs> Maybe we should start with that. He doesn't tell us which kingdom is which, but he does say some very interesting things, some very profound things. Number one, that all earthly kingdoms are God-given. You see that, verse 37? You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given right, everything. And look at this description of Nebuchadnezzar's rule, right? Daniel calls him the king of kings. I mean, he's the monarch of his time. He's unmatched. And by the way, there was a reason that the head was a head of gold. Records tell us that the Babylonian Empire was stock full of it. Everywhere you looked, there was gold. It was covered in it. 
And it says that in his hand, right, in Nebuchadnezzar's hand were the children of man. And get this, the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Yet, okay, whatever he had and however much of it he had, whatever it was, this man, it had, he had it because it was given to him, right? All his glory, all his might, all his kingdom, God has given it to you, okay? So listen. Whatever nation today has the cash flow or the power or the status, listen, they have it because God has given it to them. They didn't earn it in their own strength. By the way, what do you have that has not been given to you? Paul asked that of the Corinthians, right? And of course, we, like they, know the answer. Well, it's nothing. We should know the answer. Everything I have is from him. And what does that make of our boasting, right? It's just a self-pride, self-promotion. And should we fail to live according to his word, well, he can just as well remove those things. If he gave them, he can take them. Now, did you notice the language? Right? Isn't that peculiar, the language that is used? It's very reminiscent, you know, of, of whom? Of Adam. Do you remember Genesis 1.28? Genesis 1.28, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God gave that mandate to Adam. At his height, right at the pinnacle of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, you know what? He was a lot like Adam. But that also meant he could just as easily fall through sin. And here's what a second thing you see in this interpretation. Number two, that all earthly kingdoms are really what? They're just transient. Right? As however glorious, however far-reaching an earthly kingdom may grow to be, There's always an after this, right? The only constant among these kingdoms is their thirst for power. They all have that. They all want to rule. Was it not Alexander the Great who said, who who wept in his 20s because he, quote, had no more lands to conquer? But as vast as it was, the Greek Empire, right? Eventually it too fell. And another kingdom took its place. Right? It didn't last. They don't last. But connected to this, you see this point, right? Number three, that human history is devolving, not evolving. Right? We see this third profound observation. Human beings are not progressing. We are regressing. The way is not up. Okay, don't let the pseudo-scientists say otherwise. That was um, W.A. Criswell's, a bygone preacher, what he used to say for about evolutionists. The pseudo-scientist. The pseudo-scientist says that we start with the mud, right? And we've worked our way up to the bronze and then to the silver, and you know we're working our way up to the gold. See, that's the progression in the evolutionist cycle. We start with the clay, right? Isn't that the primordial soup, right? And we advance from there. They say man is moving up in the world. Humans are advancing. Listen, it doesn't take a physicist to see that everything, 
Even the natural order of the cosmos is working the other way. It's working down, right? You realize the sun is hydrogen energy. It's burning out. One day it'll burn. It's not going to burn forever. Hey, put fuel in the engine of your car. What happens? Right? It explodes and it breaks down into the lower parts. Hey, guess what? You can't put it back together and get gasoline again. It's gone. Right? The energy is spent. There is a tendency towards deterioration in all of life. Look around. Right? How about in every civilization? In society? How about in the family? So it is with humanity. It's working down. It's not working up. And by tying each kingdom, right? There's four kingdoms, but did you notice it's all one statue? It's all one image? One statue of what? A man. Nebuchadnezzar's dream is really a commentary on the whole human enterprise. Right? Though it started out with great glory, right? Great giftedness of God, like Adam. Yet because of human sin, the movement is continuously further and further from Him. Right? The further the river runs from the source, the more what? Polluted it gets. As Paul told Timothy, in the last days, evil people will go from bad to worse. Okay, this is the sum total of man without God. Hopelessly spiraling in a degenerative cycle against God. You see it everywhere. You see it in our country. You see it around the world. And it's weak, right? And it's brittle. It's hardly holding together, right? Like clay and iron. But is this, right? And this cycle, the ultimate fact of history. Is that what you or I are hopelessly bound to relate to? Well, here's the good news. This great, splendorous image isn't the climax of the dream. Actually, it's the problem. Right? The climax is the coming of the stone. Right? Here's the disclosure in verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. There's not going to be an after this. Right? And it shall stand forever. Verse 45, Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces, right? Everything. The iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. So here's the last thing. I love this. God's kingdom, that's the stone, gets the final word. By the way, what's the identity of the stone in this dream? Can I draw some connections here? You got your Bibles, right? Would you turn for a minute? First, I want to take you to the book of Psalms, chapter 2, right? Psalms, chapter 2. We're going to connect this together here a little bit. Psalm chapter 2, begin with verse 7. Look at this. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. 
Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Sound familiar? Sound like Daniel 2? Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. It means, it tells us the Messiah will one day break the nations into pieces. The same event of Daniel 2.44. Now, turn to the New Testament, okay? Luke chapter 20. We know it's the Messiah. Well, who is he? I'm going to pick up, and this is the middle of Jesus' story here, okay? I'm going to pick up in verse 14. Jesus is telling a story to the people of Israel at this time. Verse 14, But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out. Remember after this, they had beaten the servants that had came, all right, to collect for the father, the master. And so he sends his son, and here's what they do to him. They kill him. Verse 15, they threw him out of the vineyard uh, and killed him. And Jesus asks, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Verse 16, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And look at verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. That is a reference to Daniel 2.44. So, we know from Psalm 2 it's the Messiah. We know from Luke 20... The Messiah is Jesus, right? Jesus is the stone. He clearly identifies himself as it in Luke 20. So we know who it is, but now let me ask you this. Has this been fulfilled? Well, let me ask you, if we put it this way, and according to the language of Psalm 2, do the nations still rage? Yeah. Do they still plot against the Lord and his anointed? You see, when Jesus came the first time, He did not set up an earthly kingdom that brought an end to the times of the Gentiles. No. They they continue to dominate. What Jesus did do was establish His church, which He bought with His shed blood and justified by His resurrection, right? And God is not done with Israel. One more passage to look. I want you to see this. Turn to the book of Romans, chapter 11. Because remember, Israel's asking. They're the ones reading Daniel 2 and saying, what's going to become of us? Okay. Romans 11, verse 25. Paul writes this. He says, Lest you be wise in your own sight. 
I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Right? Same time period that Jesus is talking about. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the Gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So, listen, God will yet save Israel. And the message in Daniel's time was, you know, God's not finished with you. And even after Jesus, the Messiah, their Messiah was rejected by his own people, Paul still says, God's not done with you yet. A partial hardening has happened, but yet all Israel will be saved. He will yet establish an earthly, everlasting kingdom. But in the meantime, right, in the now, what is Jesus doing? He's building up a house from every tribe from every nation, from every people, from every language. And this people will be His bride, right? The stone the builders rejected has become what? The cornerstone. So you need to be asking yourself, how do I relate to history? Because you see, as it is, there's only two options, right? You're either going to be clinging to the stone, right? And we all saw how that's destined to end. The whole human enterprise is coming down, right? Not going to be any trace of that left. And they're not going to put another one up. Or, you're standing on the stone. That is, on him. The only two options. What's it going to be? Do you realize why Nebuchadnezzar's dream was so terrifying to him? What was he clinging to? And what was soon to be disappearing? Everything he treasured, everything he valued, gone. So what is it? Are you clinging to that or are you standing on the stone? I'm going to ask our deacons as they, if they would make their way forward because for the serving of our communion meal. And I want you to think as they do that of how you relate to the stone. Right? The way I see it, there's three reactions to the stone in Scripture. Like the Jews, you can stumble over it. Right? They stumbled over the stone. That's what Jesus became to them, a rock of offense. They tripped right over Him because all their self-dependence. They couldn't see it, that they were actually clinging to the statue. Or you could be like the nations, right, who rebel, who fight against God, who love their sin more than they love Him. And they also will be broken and shattered when the stone comes. Hey, Jesus is not someone you trifle with, right? You don't sin and get away with it. Because God will disclose on that day the secrets of all men's hearts. You can't hide it from Him. But rather than having that reaction, how about this? You can let Him become your cornerstone. Right? The foundation stone. That's what Jesus is to His church, to you and me, right? He's the cornerstone. Be built on Him. Build your life on Him. His kingdom is unshakable. It's enduring. 
And as the writers of the New Testament say, escape the corruption, the degenerative cycle of this world. Stand on the stone. What did Jesus say? Believe in me. Call out to me. Hey, what a great day to be coming to the meal that Jesus has prepared for us. It's not to fill our stomachs, okay? It's to fill your soul. And what our souls need most is to remember what He did for us in becoming our rock. Right? Dying for us. Being raised again. Okay? But, okay, if you are not standing on Christ by faith, then here's what I'm going to ask you to do. When the bread comes around and it passes through your pew and the cup comes after it, I'm going to ask you not to take it. Okay? Because what I don't want you to do is to deceive yourself. And we're good at that, right? We think by, you know, we can make ourselves believe we're okay if we just do a few outward things. Well, I'll show up to church. Well, I'll eat this bread and I'll drink this cup and that'll be good. When all along our lives, after we go from here, don't show Jesus Christ. A life of faith is expressed in actuality. It shows it. And you know But as for the rest of our saints who are gathered here, listen, the table is not for the perfect. It's for the hungry. You know what I mean? Are you hungry for God? Are you hungry? Do you want more of Him in your life? Then let's enjoy this meal. Okay, Let's enjoy this meal. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, in hearing what we've heard today, it gives a fresh meaning when you taught your disciples how to pray. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom, Lord. Not ours. Lord, I'm not putting all my hopes in what I can do or what Trump can do or what the United Nations can do, but what you can do. We know where they're headed. Lord, we need you. And we anticipate. We look forward your coming. Come soon, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Amen.